This morning's sermon is titled, A Traveler's Guide. You see it there on the screen. I, I recall back in 2008, I was just finishing up my time in college. We went on a road trip. I'd gone to school in northeast Pennsylvania uh, in Scranton or near there. If you're familiar with the office, it's the only good thing that's come out of Scranton. Um, Nevertheless, that was when I was in college, when that was being developed. And uh, from there, we were going on a road trip about 12 hours due north. It's pretty far up into Canada. In fact, I think there's a map you can see. That top spot where the red dot is, that's where the camp was, a little town called Shakutami, Canada. It's uh, quite a hike to get up there. And so we loaded up maybe half a dozen guys into a 15-passenger van. Now, remember, I said this was 2008, the iPhone came out in 2007, so none of us had it yet. We didn't have those little GPS you mounted up on your car. We got up there with one of these bad boys. <laughs> some of you remember them, and some of you have no idea what I am holding right now. This is called a road atlas. What you do is you open it, and it shows you the roads you got to figure out how to get where you're going. As long as you know north, south, east, and west. <laughs> the other issue that, that came to us, and you can see the last city that you touch before you go up to Camp Brochet in Chicoutimi, Canada, is Quebec City. It's good to know north, south, east, west. It's also good to know the language in which the roads are labeled. And that's a French city there. And so I was not driving. I was the navigator for this portion of the journey. And so I've got the, the road atlas open, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And the, the roads are not marked real clearly. It was a city founded about 400 years ago. And so it's not laid out like this Indiana country boys used to. You just go up and over and up and over. It's a, it's a waterway that defines where the city's at. So we're winding through trying to figure out what to do, where to go. And I said to the driver, I said, hey, if you turn left right here, this is the last turn and we'll be out of the city and we'll be on our way up north to get to Camp Brochet. We turned left, we went about 100 yards and found ourselves on the end of a pier. <laughs> Wasn't exactly what we had in mind. We, we realized we'd been looking at the guide, but we needed to look a little bit closer because we, we didn't exactly see it rightly, if you will. So fast forward, we go up to the camp, we have a great week at camp, we come back down, we're, we're driving through the night because we're trying to get back as quickly as we can, you know, so you're, you're taking, you know, rotations, driving and sleeping and all of that business. We come back to Quebec City and I said, guys, it's okay, I know how to do this. I've done it wrong, I know where we're going, let me read the map. And so we, we're coming back through, it's about three o'clock in the morning and there were some unexpected circumstances that came into our path. I did not realize that was the city's 400-year anniversary. So we're driving down the road that I now know is the right way out of the city when the Celine Dion concert lets out, and there are 5,000 people walking straight down the road, and so we make a U-turn in the face of oncoming civilians because there is no path forward, and we realized, <laughs> we realized that although we knew the path, our circumstances had changed, and we had to go back to the map, the guide, to figure out what in the world are we supposed to do here. And this morning, what we're going to see in Genesis 8 and 9 is that we get a traveler's guide from Noah, 
from his family on how we wait on God and how we walk with God and how we worship God. And for some of you, I think you might be a bit like me going north up through Quebec City. It's the first time maybe you've really sunk down and considered what does it look like to wait on God or to walk with God or to truly worship him. But there's others of you here that I know have done that before, and I wonder if your circumstances haven't changed a bit, like ours had on the way back from the camp. And you say, man, I've figured out this path before, and I've made a few wrong turns along the way, but my circumstances have changed, and I've got to think more carefully about how do I walk with God? How do I wait on God? How do I worship God in this particular season? And for you, the, you need to do the exact same thing that we needed to do. Look back at the traveler's guide. Let it guide your way and instruct you in how to proceed. So that's what we'll do. We'll look at uh, the first point this morning then is a traveler's guide to waiting on the faithful God. Traveler's guide to waiting on the faithful God. You see, in this narrative, waiting is a major theme of the story. It's a major theme. Look back at your copy of God's Word, and we'll actually go back one chapter to chapter 7 to contrast a little bit here. Look at verse 6 of chapter 7 in Genesis. We read uh, Genesis 7, 6, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. Okay, Noah's 600 years old. Easy enough to see. Then come back to the passage Ken just read, chapter 8, and look at verse 13. I'll read up through verse 16. In the 601st year, on the first, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. The reason I read that and remind you of this, Noah had been on this boat for over a year. Well, that's some serious seasickness he'd be developing there. I hope he liked his company. They were stuck in close quarters. Right? There's a lot of waiting to happen. In fact, there are um, at least eight different references to waiting throughout this narrative. We're told that Noah waited for five whole months once the ark had come to rest on top of the mountain. I mean, just imagine yourself, the, the, the rains came down, the floods came up, and it finally all ended, and you settle on the mountain, you think you're about to get out, and you've got five more months of waiting. It's a major component of this story. And what is so important that we can see in the traveler's guide, and we often don't see in our own lives, is that God is working while Noah is waiting. You've got to see that. Maybe you won't see it, but you've got to know it, that God is working while Noah's waiting, and the same is true in your life. You see, Noah had been saved from the flood, but he wasn't yet fully delivered. Think about that. He'd been saved from the flood. He'd survived, but he was still stuck on top of a mountain in a giant wooden boat with water everywhere. He wasn't yet fully delivered. He still had to get out of this boat and figure out how to survive on an earth that had just been destroyed. They had, in a sense, made it through the most dangerous part, but they still had a lot of trusting and waiting left to do. 
I couldn't help but think of the movie Sully or the documentary Miracle on the Hudson. Perhaps you've seen or heard of those. About 15 years ago, there was a major jetliner flying over the East Coast where two, uh, they lost two of their major engines through a, they ran into a flock of geese. And they couldn't make it back to an airport, and there was a miraculous landing of uh, this major airliner on the Hudson River. You always hear that in the unlikely event of a water landing, and you think, man, I'm flying from Indianapolis to, like, Atlanta. I don't think there's going to be a water landing here. And for them, there was. And yet, the, they landed, they thought they'd been saved, and then they realized it was the middle of January on the Hudson River. And the water begins to pour onto the aircraft. And how do we evacuate all these people quickly enough that they don't die on the second crisis? I wonder if Noah wouldn't have been feeling something like that. I've been saved from the flood, but I've not yet been fully delivered. And I think sometimes in our waiting, it feels similar. You might say, Justin, I know I'm a Christian. I know I've trusted in Jesus Christ. I've been saved. But this waiting business, I don't see what God is doing here. Boy, I want to be delivered from that. And it's scary for me. It's putting me to the test. It feels like it's more than I can bear. When will it come to an end? Don't you think Noah and his kids would have asked that? And what does the passage tell us? Look back, chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. Boy, that's a good four words right there, isn't it? But God remembered Noah. And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth. And the waters subsided. Because what this tells us is that God is sovereign over all of our waiting. And God's sovereignty, his complete control over the floodwaters in Noah's day and the waiting in our day, it demands our attention. This would have been noteworthy when the Israelites first received the book of Genesis that God was sovereign over the flood because the other gods, little g gods in their day, were not said to be sovereign over these things. In fact, they were scared of the floods. Nature was the the God. One kind of easy way to see this is from what's called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Take a look up on the screen and see what it says. The gods were frightened by the deluge and shrinking back. They ascended to the heaven of Anu. The gods cowered like dogs, crouched against the outer wall. The gods, all humbled, sit and weep. So to say that God is sovereign over these floodwaters would have been a stark contrast from the messaging in their culture however many thousand years ago. And you, this morning, you may not see God sitting in the corner cowering like a dog. That may not be the view that you have in mind. But I wonder if you are not tempted to functionally forget his sovereignty. I know I am. I see what's going on. Why is this not working out the way it's supposed to? You might be tempted to think that your waiting is hopeless or that it will be endless. Friend, let me just give you great confidence in what God says. Your waiting isn't random. 
He's using it. He's sovereign over it. Well, you might be waiting for a job that isn't a drudgery. You might be waiting to find a spouse. Maybe you have a spouse, but you're waiting for them to change, wondering if they ever will. Maybe you're wondering and waiting if you'll ever change. And waiting on yourself is really difficult. Maybe you're waiting on a wayward child, wondering if they'll come back. Waiting for a health or a financial crisis to pass. Or or maybe things are actually going kind of smooth right now. You seem to kind of be checking the boxes as you move along, move your way through life, but you're waiting if God will ever bring something really significant to you to do something that really matters with your life. God, I would like for that to happen, and you're waiting. So let me tell you a couple of things that we need to know and a couple of things we need to do in our waiting. We know God's sovereign over it. We know he's using it. Let's start. What are a couple of things you need to know in your waiting? Number one, you need to know God has not forgotten you. It might look that way. It might seem that way. You might be tempted to think that way, but God has not forgotten you. That's what Genesis 8.1 is so great for us to see, and God remembered Noah. He'd not forgotten. That word remembered doesn't mean that God forgot and then remembered. No, it means that God had acted upon his remembrance. The English kind of flattens the meaning in an unhelpful way there, but it's important that we know God never lost sight. He never forgot. It was at that point in 8.1 that he acted upon his remembrance. But also you need to know in your waiting that God has a good purpose for your waiting. He has a good purpose for your waiting. It might be an internal purpose in your life that he's wanting to conform you to the image of his son And in this period of waiting, he's changing you. That tends to be the answer we don't like, isn't it? I'm waiting for the different outcome externally. And sometimes he says, no, your waiting is for your benefit that you would be changed to be more like Jesus. But God does have good purposes for our waiting that are in the external realm. He might be using your waiting for someone else that they could hear the gospel and become a Christian. He may be using your waiting so that somebody else could grow in their faith or take a step of obedience and serve you in your waiting. Serving one another within the body is so important. And of course, in the midst of your waiting, it's extremely difficult, perhaps impossible, to see God's purpose. That's why we have to know these things and remind ourselves of truth so that, friend, you do not waste your waiting. God is sovereign over it. He's not forgotten you. He has a good purpose. Don't waste your waiting. Those are the things to know. He's not forgotten you. He does have a good purpose. But what do you do in your waiting? What are the things to do in our waiting? The first thing is you've got to take active steps of trust. For Noah, what did this mean? He put the birds out. An active step of trust to go see, is it safe to come out yet? You might call this a sanctified common sense. An active step of trust. And in our waiting, sometimes the most basic steps of doing the right thing can be really difficult to take. Can they not? It feels hopeless. 
It feels like it's not gonna do anything. We've been stuck here for so long already. And so sometimes those simplest acts of obedience, you and your mind rehearses, God, this is an active step of trust. And to the outside world, everybody looking will think this is no big deal. And yet you in your heart and in your soul, you know this is a very difficult thing for me to do. And it is an active step of trust. Maybe you're, you're waiting on a kid to come around and that active step of trust is just continuing to take them out to ice cream. They push your buttons, you push theirs, and I'm gonna continue to love them. Maybe it's, it's waiting on a job, a different job, a different boss, a different group of direct reports that won't annoy you so badly. Whatever the case, what's the active step of trust? Maybe it's you said, man, I'm gonna ask God every day to help me be a faithful steward where I'm at a steward of this job, a steward of the resources that I get from this job, a steward of the relationships I have there, as best I can, that's my active step of trust because it would be so much easier to disengage and check out. Active steps of trust. Here's the second thing you need to do in your waiting. You need to take your longings to God. You need to know that he's not forgotten. You know that he has a good purpose. There are active steps of trust you need to take, but you also need to take your longings to God. It's been said that God longs for what lies in the depths of your soul. He wants you to bring it to him. It doesn't have to be pretty or put together. You don't have to have a churchy kind of prayer but bring it to God in its rawness, in its realness. And if you'll open up the book of Psalms and read, you will see it is just loaded with prayers of people bringing their longings to God. Psalm 73 is one of my favorites, where the psalmist brings all his longings to God. He says, it doesn't make sense. I can't understand it. It's confusing. Why is this happening, God? God has given us his word to guide us in our waiting so that we can wait on him as the faithful God. Psalm 73 is also instructive because right in the middle, about verses 26 and 27 or so, right around there, the psalmist says, when I entered into the sanctuary of the Lord, when God helped me to see who he was and what he was doing, things began to make sense. There are dozens, about, about one-third of the psalms, actually, 50 of the 150. One out of every three are psalms of lament. People are bringing their longings to God, saying, God, I'm bringing this to you as an active step of trust that I know that I can wait on you because you've always been faithful and you will continue to be faithful. That's the first thing we have a traveler's guide to, to waiting on the faithful God. But here's the second thing. We see a traveler's guide to walking with the generous God. Sometimes we're waiting on God, and then we're also walking with God. So if you look back at your copy of the scriptures, Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20, we see right as Noah comes off the ark. He's not waiting anymore. He's now walking, and we read, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, why does he wait to get off the boat to offer the burnt offerings? 
Well, I would hope you wouldn't offer a burnt offering on a wooden boat. That'll make you really have to wait on God for provision. So he's probably thinking common sense says we ought to hold off on this one for a bit. But the first thing he does when he gets off the boat is he offers a sacrifice. And what that tells us is that he was walking with God and worshiping even in his waiting. Because the first thing that happens when he comes off, that was front and center. As soon as I get off this boat, offer a sacrifice to God. He worshiped in his waiting and expressed it as soon as he got off the boat. And how did he walk with God? By offering sacrifices, right? Why do I say we walk with the generous God? Why do you think I point that out? Well, it's because for Noah, who had provided the clean animals for the sacrifices? God had. You recall back? He'd said, here, I'm going to send these animals. Make sure you've got this kind and this kind. I will provide what's needed for the sacrifice. I will be generous to you, Noah. Even when you don't know what you need, I will send it to you. You may not quite be ready to receive what I need. I wonder if Noah wouldn't have even wondered, like, God, couldn't we make this boat a little smaller? Do we really need all these animals? This is a lot of work for me to drive all these nails and cut all this lumber. God's saying, I know what you need. I will generously provide for you. And he does. And so what this means then is we walk with the generous God, we are called to give our entire life as a sacrifice to him. Romans 12 helps us to see this verse one. It's on the screen. Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Where Noah offered the burnt offering, we're now told in the new covenant that the offering we're to offer to God, to the generous God, is our entire life. And it's so critical that we see the offering that we offer of our lives flows out of the ultimate offering, right? Now, you see it there in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, what's the therefore? Everything that's been said about the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ, on that basis, by the mercies of God, my offering to God flows out of the offering he provided. Or Ephesians 5, 2, in a very succinct way. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As he offered himself, so you offer yourselves. And it's interesting to see. Do you see the, the language there on the screen, Ephesians 5, of a fragrant offering? Look back at Genesis 8, verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, an acceptable sacrifice is brought. So to walk with the generous God means that I'm growing in generosity in a holistic sense. It means that I generously love others as God has generously loved me, Ephesians 5, 2. It's one thing to say that you're going to love somebody. I need to love that person. But you had that little word generously on there. Doesn't that totally change what that means? I'm going to generously love that person. That ups the ante. <laughs> We're gonna, you say, I'm going to grow in generously forgiving others. Ephesians 4.29. Yes, you could say, I will forgive others, but I see the generosity of God's forgiveness 
and it ups the ante. What was the question that the disciples asked? How many times do I have to forgive? They were down with forgiveness. They weren't sure if they were okay with generous forgiveness. And the only way to be changed, to move past, I know it's the right thing to forgive, to I will become a generous forgiver, to be changed on the inside, not merely have an external form of obedience, is to get your eyes on Jesus Christ, see how he loved me, gave himself for me, forgave me, and with my eyes on him, my inside is transformed to be generous in love and forgiveness to others. This is super important for us to see that we know others and are known by others. And it, when that happens, when you know others and when you're known by others, it's only a matter of time before you're going to figure out what the skeletons are in my closet and somebody else is going to figure out what the ones are in your closet. And that's pretty scary. In fact, it's really scary. And when we see the generous love for God, from God to us, his generous forgiveness to us, that's what enables me to not shrink back from the stuff in your life, but to be generous in love, generous in forgiveness, knowing that I need and receive that same generous love and forgiveness from God. Anything less than your eyes on him will cause you to shrink back and say, no, you're too messy for me. That's not the way of Jesus. To grow in generosity means not merely loving, not merely forgiving, yes, those, but more. It means we generously give financially because Jesus generously gave of his own blood. He didn't spare any. It means we generously sow seeds of the gospel wherever we're at, in our neighborhood, in our family gatherings, at work, seeing that Jesus generously sowed to the kingdom of God with religious people, with irreligious people, with Jews, with Gentiles, in the cities, in the countryside, wherever he was, he's generously proclaiming, sowing seeds for the kingdom of God. So to walk with the generous God means that we grow in generosity in a holistic sense, right? Sometimes you talk generosity and everybody kind of tenses up, oh, he's going to talk about money here. No, 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 it's much bigger than that, to just live a life marked by generosity because that's how God has loved us. But we're also told at the beginning of chapter 9, there's other ways that we walk with this generous God. So look back at at Genesis 9 uh, and start in verse 1 with me. What does it look like to walk with God is the question we're asking. Genesis 9, 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then drop down to verse 7. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Greatly increase on the earth and multiply in it. There's a command given. Last week, as the floodwaters came, we described it as a sort of decreation. God had brought order, and now it was becoming chaotic again. It, the, the earth was sinking down into the waters in a way that looked like a decreation. And now this mandate, the commands given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it, we see reaffirmed in Genesis 8 and 9. It's a sort of recreation. The earth has been purified by judgment, 
and now I'm commanding and commissioning you, here's how you walk with me, fulfill this creation mandate. What happens is God generously gives us opportunities all the time, and we often undersell and we miss them. Opportunities to represent God and to reflect God, to be an agent of blessing. We've used the language of bringing order out of the chaos. It's an opportunity. When you see, here's a chaotic situation, I bring order out of the chaos, that's part of being made in the image of God that I represent and reflect my creator. And just to get super granular and applicational in your daily life, like if you're writing policy for a church or a school or for your business, that's a way of bringing order out of the chaos. Generally not that fun, but important. You're at home, right? You're changing dirty diapers, you're folding laundry, you're putting the dishes away, you're vacuuming, you're, you're mowing the grass, you're putting some mulch down. You're looking for ways to bring order out of chaos. Tiny little things that you can do just because they make you feel good inside, or you can recognize in a small way, I'm representing and reflecting my creator in this. Plumbers, their work definitely bringing order out of chaos. Right, there's all kinds of ways you can see in your daily life, here's what God has given so that I can represent and reflect him and fulfill this mandate that God has given to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is how I walk with God. But it's critical that as I do that, I actively say, God, I'm doing this as obedience and worship to you not merely to expand my kingdom and my dominion and my reign so that I can buy a bigger palace on this earth. Right, every single part. That's what it means, Romans 12, that you offer your entire life as a living sacrifice. I see even the most minute things. Like I tried to pick out the most minute I could find to drive that home, say everything is an act of worship to God. This is how we walk with our generous God. Third and finally, we come to worshiping the covenantal God. We've seen a traveler's guide to waiting on the faithful God, to walking with the generous God, and lastly, to worshiping the covenantal God. If you look back at your copy of the scriptures again, chapter nine and verse nine, we see this word covenant show up. We read, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Verse 11, we read again, I establish my covenant with you. It's not a word that we use all the time in the English language. What is a covenant? You might say that it's an oath-bound relationship between two parties. That oath that binds it makes it more serious. But it's different than a contract because it's relational and personal. Right, so it's some ways more serious, and other ways more relational, more personal. You might say that it's the special way that God confirms a promise. He makes a covenant. And in Noah, in chapter 6 and chapter 9, we find the first use of this term covenant in the Bible. But it's likely not the first covenant in the Bible. It's just the first time the word shows up. Now, how would we know if there was a covenant before Noah without that word being used? You might ask, good question. We use the whole Bible to interpret the Bible. That's how. 
And so when we see in Hosea 6, for example, just one passage here up on the screen, we read, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. It's speaking to the Israelites who transgressed the covenant, but it's also saying, catch this, that Adam also transgressed a covenant. There was a covenant before Noah. More specifically in Genesis 9, this word, I will establish my covenant with you, there are two Hebrew words that result in one English word that flattens it out, right? English is establish. In the Hebrew, there's, I will establish my covenant in the sense of I will create a new one. And there's a second word that means I will reestablish my covenant. I will reaffirm my covenant. Do you know which one is used here in Genesis 9? Reaffirm. So it's, it's agreeing the word, so it's two, two tools of Bible study, context, word study. You do a word study, it helps to see what's going on, study that particular word, and I zoomed out for the whole context, jumping over to Hosea 6, to help us see what this means. So why does this matter? Maybe you're wondering, okay, neat little lesson there, Justin, what does this have to do with anything? Because God is a covenantal God. It's how he relates to mankind. And so sometimes it can feel a little abstract, a little bit distant, but this is who God is. And you want to know how he relates to you and to me? It's through covenants. They form the backbone of the whole Bible. They're what hold the whole thing together, these covenants. There's a covenant with Adam and with Noah, a covenant to Abraham that we'll get into in the fall, a covenant with Moses, a covenant with David, and then the new covenant that's brought by Jesus' own blood. And generally what happens in a covenant is you have about four sort of phases or elements. There's a command. There's a blessing for keeping the command. There's a curse if you don't. And then there's some kind of a sign to confirm it. So it's pretty straightforward, right? Here's the command. Here's the blessing if you obey. Here's the curse if you don't. And here's the sign that I will keep up my end of the bargain. So in Noah's covenant, what's the command? Produce and preserve human life. We heard that in chapter 9. And the blessing is I'm not going to destroy the earth by water. The curse, you heard the, a requirement of life for life. You take human life, life will be required of you. We begin to get introduced to God's concept of justice here in this flood narrative. And the sign is the rainbow. So that every time you look out and you start to think, man, is this rain ever going to let up or to end where we started? Is the waiting ever going to end up? End? Will this be endless and pointless? You see the sign of the rainbow say, remember God is covenanted. He's made an oath bound promise to you that he's not going to destroy you. He's with you for you. He's for your good. And through every single covenant, you see the same theme of Genesis, creation and blessing. I create you, and I choose to bless you. But the problem comes in where under each covenant, mankind doesn't keep up their end of the bargain. Certainly, Adam didn't. Next week, we'll see how Noah went his own way. And so there's creation and a blessing that's supposed to come, but when mankind doesn't do their part, when they turn and go their own way instead of God's way, how does the blessing still come? 
What are we to do with that? You'll recall that I've told you, week after week, God's promises are fulfilled by God's providence. Here's what that means. He promises a blessing and he provides the blessing. It's not up to us to earn the blessing. He promises it and he provides it. But it's more than that. If it were merely that, you could just get to a health and wealth and prosperity gospel that God said he's going to bless me and he always does. But you leave out the curses part of the covenant. You can't leave that out. That if we disobey, there is judgment. There is wrath. There is destruction. And we see all of these Old Testament covenants building, ultimately, to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we get it foreshadowed. So so maybe one of the most famous examples, it's so beautiful to see how God not only provides the blessing, but provides the sacrifice to cover the curse. In Genesis 22, Abraham is up on the mountain to offer a sacrifice. He thinks he has to sacrifice his own son. And God provides a ram that gets caught in the thicket. And God says, yes, I'll provide the blessing. I'll also provide the sacrifice. And the sacrifice will absorb the curse so that I can bring you the blessing. He always provides. You see, the picture that we see of these other gods in the Old Testament, little g gods again, is that they would get angry at mankind doing bad things and they would point their wrath downward. They pour out their wrath on the humans. And in Noah's covenant, God says, I'm not gonna pour out the wrath on you in a flood ever again. No, what I'm going to do, what I'm gonna do is I'll actually pour out my wrath on myself. I'll fully absorb it. I'll send my son, and where you have disobeyed and transgressed, I'll provide him as a sacrifice, to take on the curses from the covenant so that I can faithfully bring the blessing. God's promises fulfilled through his providence. Pastor Steve referenced this a couple of minutes ago, but there is a problem here that I've not yet gotten to. Not everyone receives the blessing. Eternal life with God, right relationship with God, with God, restored and reconciled relationships. Because if you try to stand up under the curse yourself, you will take on the curse that results in death and hell forever. So God has promised a way and provided a way to deal with the curse, that Jesus would come and live the perfect life that we were supposed to live but none of us did. And he would die the horrible death that we should have died because of our sin to free us from that, to offer forgiveness, to bring us back to God. And if you stand behind him and trust in his death for your forgiveness, then you can receive the blessing that he promises. I wonder this morning if someone's here and you simply have not entrusted your life to Jesus Christ. So I see your death on the cross is the payment for my sins that it allows me to have a right relationship with God. But if you have trusted in Jesus, there's a traveler's guide here to how you worship the covenantal God. 
It means we come to him with open hands, recognizing I brought nothing to earn the blessing, I brought nothing to cover the curse, I didn't provide the sign of the covenant, the rainbow is so high above, I couldn't do anything to provide that, and I say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. God, I come to you humbly, knowing that any blessing I have, a spiritual blessing, a physical blessing, any sort of blessing, it's all from you. It's all yours. And I worship you by offering it all back as a living sacrifice. We have a traveler's guide to waiting on the faithful God, to walking with the generous God, and to worshiping the covenantal God with open hands coming back to him, offering everything to him. Let's pray.